If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, I want to ask you to open to Romans chapter 9. This morning, we're beginning a new section in Paul's letter. As we mentioned last week, we concluded the third section last week. There are four sections in the doctrinal portion of Paul's letter to the Romans. And so this is the last section of the doctrinal half, if you will, of Paul's letter. Before he changes gears in chapter 12 and begins his practical portion of the letter. And up to this point, what Paul has been doing in these first eight chapters is he has been laying out the, these doctrines relating to salvation and relating to the gospel, but he's been doing so from the perspective of the individual. He's been addressing things like what is the individual's condition apart from Christ? What does the individual need in order to be justified by God? And how does the individual obtain that which he needs in order to be justified by God? He's addressed what is the individual's relationship with the law and the individual's relationship with sin and the spirit now that he is justified before God. And can the individual be confident that once they're saved, they'll always be saved? These are all questions that Paul has been addressing in these first eight chapters, but he's been doing so from the perspective of the individual. Now he changes gears, and now he's going to be talking about the great doctrines of of salvation, but he's going to back up into more of a general perspective. And he's going to be covering those things from the perspective of the Israelite and the Gentile. That's the new focus that he's going into in this section in chapters 9 through 11. If you recall, we we said early on as we kind of began this study walking through this letter to the Romans, that Paul's letter, especially the first 11 chapters of this letter, It's basically his presentation of the gospel. That's essentially what he's doing in the first half of this letter. He's he's presenting the gospel to his readers. In the second half, beginning in chapter 12, that's the practical portion. So, So in the first 11 chapters, he's telling us what we ought to believe. And in chapter 12 to the end of the book, he's telling us how we should live in light of those beliefs. Now, we saw the beginning of this gospel presentation of Paul's in chapter 1, verse 16. That that famous verse that we repeated a number of times as as we've been walking through this letter. Paul's grand presupposition of his gospel presentation when he said in that verse, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what Paul has been doing in this letter up to this point is explaining the how and the why of how the, the, how the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But the part of that great presupposition in chapter 1 verse 16 that he has yet to cover is the last part where he says, to the Jew first 
and also to the Greek. What does he mean by that? Well, that is the theme to which he now turns in this new section beginning in chapter 9. And if you think about it, it, it makes sense that this would be the next thing that Paul would cover in this letter. In fact, one could argue that this might be a glaring question or perhaps even a glaring objection that his first century readers might have as they're working their way through this letter of his. Think about it. He's just closed chapter 8, talking about the great immutability of God's purposes in salvation. That if you are in Christ, that there is absolutely nothing that can be done to separate you from the love of God in Christ. God purposed to save you, and he has done just that. And if he has saved you, then there's no more condemnation for you. There's not even the possibility of condemnation for you. And nothing can be against you. And your ultimate salvation and your glorification in Christ are a sure thing. Nobody can change it, not even yourself. And these were glorious truths that we reveled in and celebrated together at the end of chapter 8. For all of us who are in Christ, these are sure things for us because we were foreknown by God and, and predestined by God and called effectively by God into relationship with him and therefore justified and glorified. All of these things are, are, are as if they've already happened. They're a sure thing for us. But what would have been rather obvious to all of his first century readers is that the Jews... The nation of Israel, who were God's chosen people, his elect nation, that they were not followers of Christ for the most part. That with very few exceptions, by and large, they had rejected the gospel and were now outside of God's family. And so the objectors might say, Paul, if you're saying that our position as those who are in Christ, that we are God's elect, that we are God's chosen people now, and that we should find great confidence in that because nothing will ever change that, because that's what he said in chapter 8, well then Paul, dude, what happened to the Jews? They were God's chosen people. They were of the elect nation. What's up with them? How can we find confidence in the fact that we are chosen, we are God's elect, if Israel was God's chosen, and now they're outside God's family? What's up with that, Paul? And furthermore, Paul, how can you now say that we Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ, that now we are the chosen nation? How does all that work? Well, these are the questions to which Paul now begins to turn his attention in chapters 9 through 11, this last great doctrinal section of this letter before we get to the practical section beginning in chapter 12. Now, as I said last week, this chapter, particularly chapter 9 that we're beginning this morning, is one of the most difficult chapters in all of Scripture. Now, when when preachers say things like that, they mean one of two things. Either it's difficult because it's hard to interpret, or it's difficult because it's hard to accept. Either it's difficult because of 
the words that are used, the Greek grammar that we find, the, the Hebrew way of, of writing backwards and trying to understand all the vowel pointing and all of this stuff, it's, it's simply hard to understand because it's hard for us to interpret what the original text means, and so we wrestle with the meaning. But there are other times when passages of Scripture are difficult primarily because the teaching is just hard. And what we find in the passage seems to go against what we naturally would assume about God, about us, or about whatever the passage is teaching. So it's, it's hard, not, not because it's hard to interpret, but because it's hard to accept. And I would submit to you that chapter 9 is difficult, in my humble opinion, because of this latter reason. There are some things in chapter 9 that are just hard for us to accept. And I would, I would wager, not that we wager, but I would wager to guess that regardless of your theological bent, that all of us will be challenged, hopefully, that all of us will be challenged in our own presuppositions as we make our way through this chapter together. And it's for this reason that I want to, as we begin this journey together, offer just a couple of exhortations for us to consider as we begin this journey together. The first is let's be gracious and humble with one another as we begin this journey, as we make our way through chapter 9. And I believe that it begins with me and it begins with this pulpit. It's been my prayer as I've been studying Scripture and preparing for this chapter in particular that God would give me the grace and the ability, which I don't naturally have, to be able to handle this chapter with clarity and with grace. I want to rightly divide God's Word. I want to be accurate, and I want to be as precise as possible with what God's Word says. But I want to be humble about that, and I want to be gracious about that. And I think that should be the example that we follow as we work our way through Romans 9 together. An example that each of us should follow in our individual conversations with one another, in our, in our discussions as a base group as we unpack these things together, that we too would have those conversations with humility and grace. So let me be clear from the outset. You don't have to agree with me on this stuff. You simply don't have to agree with me. This is not... A salvation issue. These issues that we will unpack in here, these finer points of predestination and election and the sovereignty of God versus man's will, we will dive into the depths of God's word. Why? Because they are rich and they are here in front of us. And we're not going to do an end around. We're not going to avoid them. We're going to dive into them. But let us do so with humility and grace. And as you unpack these in your base groups, please, do so with humility and grace. We don't all have to agree on this together. If you don't end up agreeing with me on the finer points of the things that Paul addresses in this passage, that's okay. You're still a Christian. You're still saved. You're still a member. And, you, and we still need you at New Branch. This is, this is not a litmus test for salvation or membership or serving in any way. And here's why. 
because I might be wrong. I, I, might, I, I might not be right about this. I have a conviction about what I believe God's word is saying. So you, so you, so you sense the tension, right? I have to be able to say, thus saith the word, thus saith the Lord in his word. But I want to do so with humility and grace. Far be it from us to conclude that we have cornered the market on theology. And for me to stand up here and say that I know exactly what Paul means when he talks about the elect and the non-elect would be very prideful and boastful of me. I can't do that. So I endeavor not to do that on Sunday mornings here. But may I be so bold as to furthermore exhort you not to do that either. And your base groups and your discussions leave room for discussion, leave room for disagreement. The goal here is to discuss and apply this passage, which leads me to the second exhortation. And that is, let's be God-centered in our focus and in our application as we work our way through this text. Regardless of where each of us falls with respect to the finer points of doctrine in chapter 9, we should remind ourselves that this passage was not given to us to divide the church, but to encourage the church and to bring the church together in the worship of God. We should remember that at the end of this section, chapters 9 through 11, we find the Apostle Paul erupting in worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, he says. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Our primary application of not just chapter 9, but this entire section, as Paul deals with the Israelites and the Gentiles and how all that fleshes out, and regardless of, of how much agreement we all have on those issues, the application, the primary application of all of this, all of this should lead us to worship. The great Welsh preacher one of my heroes in the faith, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, explains that this entire section, chapters 9 through 11, is really a theodicy. A theodicy. A theodicy is, is simply, that word simply means the justification of God. And what we have here is Paul presenting to us God's eternal purposes with respect to Israelites and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, with respect to salvation. And in the end, he concludes that God is completely justified in his eternal plans for all peoples. And no further justification for God is needed because his plans are perfect and he is sovereign and, and, and he is God. And in light of that, Paul erupts into his doxology at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. However we interpret chapters 9, 10, 11, we must arrive at worship. For that is the reason why we have these passages. It must lead us to a larger 
more grand picture of the glory and sovereignty of God that brings us to our knees in humble worship of our God. That's why we're given chapters 9 through 11. Not to divide the church, not to put together charts and graphs, but to lead us to humble worship of God. May that be our application of this passage in this chapter as well. Now, with that overview of the section as our foundation, let me quickly give you an outline of the chapter to which we're going to cover first, chapter 9. In the first five verses that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see a glimpse into Paul's heart for his fellow countrymen, the Israelites. And we're going to see that he loves them and that he has a, a deep and unceasing anguish in his soul over their spiritual condition. In verses 6 through 13, Paul is going to begin to address the question, has God's, have God's promises to the Israelites failed? And his answer will be, as we'll, as we'll unpack next week, no, because not all Israel is Israel. In verses 14 through 18, he's going to answer the question, is it fair for God to choose some but not others? And Paul is going to address the issue of both the elect and the non-elect. And we're going to dive into that. In verses 19 through 23, we're going to answer the question, how can God condemn us if he's the one who chooses who will be saved? And so you see this attempt to, to bring a justification of God. Here are God's plans, and God is justified in all that he does. How can God be justified? How is he just? How is he fair in condemning us if it's his choice who gets saved? In verses 24 through 29, we're going to see that Paul harmonizes the Old Testament with this New Testament teaching on election. We're going to see that, that the teaching on election is not just a New Testament construct, but something that is incorporated in Old Testament teaching as well. He's going to bring in a lot of Old Testament passages to support that. And then in verses 30 through 33, he's going to answer the question, why did Israel not obtain the promises? So with this as our roadmap for chapter 9, I want you to look at your Bibles. We're going to read through the first five verses. That's where we're going to focus our attention in our remaining time together this morning. Here's the word of God. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So in these five verses, Paul begins to answer the question, what's the deal with all the unbelieving Jews? How do we reconcile that with what we know to be true about them as a chosen people? Again, he's just finished chapter 8. 
with all of these joy-filled truths and his confidence that those whom God foreknew and predestined and called, he also justified and glorified. Those whom God has elected, these he has, he has set apart for salvation. And those who are set apart for salvation, nobody can separate them from God's love. And the obvious question now is, well, what about Israel? What about the Jews? This is the question to which Paul now begins to respond. Now, now the main part of his answer to that question is going to come in the passage that we look at next week, in verses 6 through 13, where he's going to tell us the answer is not all Israel is Israel. We're going to unpack what in the world that means. But in this morning's passage, verses 1 through 5, we're going to take a peek into Paul's heart. He gives us a glimpse into his own heart. There are two things that I want us to walk away from this morning with with respect to these first five verses. First of all is to see Paul's heart for the lost. Second of all is to notice the signs of God's favor for the Israelites. So let's deal with the first of them. Let's look at Paul's heart. He begins by stating in the absolute most convincing way he possibly can that he's telling the truth. Look at verse 1. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So there's three statements there, all saying the same thing, trying to communicate in no uncertain terms that that I want you to really believe me because I'm telling you the truth about how I feel. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. So So he's telling the truth, not just as a Christian, but he's speaking the truth in Christ. In other words, as if Christ were there with him. He would not think of of being deceptive and lying in the presence of Christ. He says, Christ is with me, and I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. What is it that Paul wants to make sure we know that he is telling the truth about? Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul has spent the better half of eight chapters laying out these grand doctrines of salvation in Christ. And at this point, it's as if he discerns that some of his readers might conclude that he's just this cold-hearted, isolated, ivory-towered theologian who doesn't really have a, a feeling about this. And he wants to correct that. And, and, and maybe you've had that perspective of Paul. Because, because we, we may have missed the forest for the trees as we, as, as we have, have handled verse by verse, p- picking all of this apart to seek to understand what Paul has said in these eight chapters. You may have concluded, man, where's Paul's heart in all of this? Now, he wants to dispel that conclusion. And he says, listen, I want you to know, I am telling you the truth. I am burying my soul before you. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have deep sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For what? He says, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
When Paul refers to his kinsmen according to the flesh, he's referring to his fellow Israelites, the Jews. He says, they're my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul was a Jew, we know that. So these are his people. This is his crew. And Paul knows, as we do, that with just a few exceptions, himself being one, by and large, the overwhelming majority of first century Jews rejected Christ as the Messiah, rejected the gospel, and are outside of God's family. And this absolutely breaks his heart. And he says, I have deep sorrow and unceasing anguish. Think about that. Never ending grief over this that my fellow Jews the chosen ones are lost and they're outside of Yahweh's family and in order for his readers to fully appreciate the longing of his heart in case they didn't get it with deep sorrow and unceasing anguish he adds at the beginning of verse 3 For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for their sake. This statement by Paul is absolutely staggering. I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. After after just articulating the grand love of Christ... For sinners like him, displayed at the cross, this love that was unconditional and irrevocable, this love that redeems and rescues those who otherwise would be enemies of God. This is the love that Paul says, if I could, I would relinquish my right to that love if it would save my fellow kinsmen in the flesh. This is not, this is not just a passing concern on Paul's part for his fellow Israelites. This is a deep sorrow and unceasing anguish that results or displays and uncovers for us his heart which is a deep and genuine love and concern that manifests itself in a willingness to sacrifice that which is his greatest treasure. We cannot read any of Paul's letters and not conclude that his greatest treasure is Christ alone. And yet, compelled by his love for his fellow lost Israelites. He said, I would give it up if I could, if that would save them. Reminds us of Moses' love for his people, doesn't it? Remember the story from Exodus 32. Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. And he's up there a while. And the Israelites grow impatient the ones who have been delivered out of slavery in Egypt by this God. They, they grow impatient. 
and they rebel against God, and they conspire with Aaron to collect their spare gold, and they melt their gold down, and they fashion it into an idol, a, a gold. They don't even have enough to make a cow. They just make a calf, and they begin to worship that image and rebel against God, committing spiritual adultery against God. And, and God's wrath rightly burns against them. And so Moses climbs back up to Mount Sinai and he says to God, if, if you won't forgive them, then blot out my name from the book of life in which you wrote. In other words, if my life will atone for their sins, then take me instead. And of course, Moses couldn't atone for their sins any more than he can atone for his own sins. And the same is true for Paul. Paul knows that this is impossible. He knows that him being accursed and cut off from Christ could not save a single one of his countrymen. But still he wishes it were so, so that his lost fellow countrymen could be saved. What, what are we to learn from this? Why, why, does, why does God include this in the canon? Why, why is this preserved for us in Scripture, for us to see the heart of God? Why don't we just fast forward to election and the reprobate and all of that fun stuff that we're getting to in chapter 9? Why, why do we have this here in the first five verses? I believe God has preserved this glimpse into Paul's heart to see his great and deep sorrow and unceasing anguish and grief in his soul. I believe that's here because this should be our heart towards the lost around us as well. This should be our heart. When is the last time that you wept over your lost neighbors? When was the last time that you were grieved and anguished in your soul over your lost co-workers and your lost family, friends, who are apart from Christ and outside the family of God? It is to our own shame that many of us, far too many of us, don't even know our neighbors, much less weep over their spiritual condition. What we see in these verses is Paul's love for his fellow Jews. He loves them. Do we love our neighbors? Do we, lost, do, we, do we love our lost co-workers? Do we love the lost of this community to which God has sent us? Do we? If we truly love them and they don't know Christ... And this gospel that Paul has been laying out for us in these first eight chapters is really true, and it is, then our hearts will break over their condition apart from Christ. And we will be willing to do anything and sacrifice anything in order to see them come to faith in Jesus. Isn't that what Paul is saying? 
I wish that I were accursed and cut off from Christ for their sake. Can we say that? If we truly believe this stuff and we don't seek to build a relationship with the lost that God has placed around us, to engage them in relationship and show them the love of Christ by serving them and share with them the love of Christ by giving them the gospel. If we don't do that, what does that say about our heart? Charles Spurgeon tells a story of a little girl who was sick and who was dying. She was deathly ill. And she was talking to her pastor one day about her father. Her father was an unbeliever, and she had invited her father to come with her to church often, and he had never taken her up on that invitation. And one Sunday she said to the pastor, Pastor, you will bury me, won't you? Because my father will come to my funeral, and he will hear you speak, and you will speak the gospel. Speak it clearly, pastor. I have prayed for my father a long time, and I know that God will save him. According to Spurgeon, the father did come to his daughter's funeral, and he did respond to the gospel, and he was converted. The little girl didn't die in her father's place. Only Jesus could do that. But she was willing to pay any price that he might come to faith in Jesus. What about you? What price are you willing to pay? What sacrifice are you willing to make? To see others come to within earshot of the gospel and have an opportunity to respond. Are you willing to open up your home and invite your neighbors in, share a meal with them, and engage them in a relationship and show them the love of Christ by serving them and share the love of Christ with them by giving them the gospel? Are you willing to sacrifice your time? Are you willing to sacrifice your comfort? Are you willing to sacrifice your leisure? Are you willing to sacrifice your money? Are you willing to sacrifice, you fill in the blank, whatever it is. Are you willing to sacrifice it to see others hear and respond to the gospel? This is the call that missionaries respond to and sell their possessions and move to third world countries. This is the this is the call that, that people in a comfortable church respond to and say, you know what? This is a comfortable place. We've got comfortable chairs. We've got a, a, a really nice building. But, but I'm going to go with this group, and I'm going to extend the gospel by helping to plant a church over here where there is no comfortable chair and there is no comfortable roof, where we've got to set up chairs once again, and I'm going to see the gospel planted here for the glory of God because I love the lost in the community that much. But it's also the call that moves us from our comfortable homes to walk across the street and engage our neighbors in gospel conversations and in loving relationships through which we share the love of Christ. 
Paul was compelled, first of all, by the love of Christ for sinners like him. He was compelled by the love of Christ for the chief of sinners, as he, which is how he saw himself. But he was also compelled by his love for the lost. And compelled by the love of Christ for him and his love for the lost. Paul was willing to give up anything and everything to see others come to faith in Christ. And I think we should note here that Paul's deep sorrow and his unceasing anguish in his heart for the lost Jews was a love for his enemies. We need to remember that Paul was hated by the Jews of his day. To them, he was a traitor. He was a, he was a turncoat. And there was a point in time in which they, the, the Jews conspired to kill him. So this is not just a call for us to love those who like us, but to love those who even hate us. What is the level of the anguish in your soul for the lost that God has sent you to, that God has put you across the street from, that God has put you down the hall from, that God has placed you in the same community with? What is the level of your anguish for them and concern for their spiritual condition? It is my prayer that God would be so gracious to give us a deep sorrow and unceasing, unending anguish and grief in our heart for the lost here and to the ends of the earth. Those who like us and those who hate us, may our response to them come from a heart that loves them and has been changed by the love of Christ. Now I think it's infinitely important for us to also recognize here at the outset of chapter 9 to see that Paul's love for the Jews here is even more meaningful in light of what he's going to say about the Jews later in chapter 9. And as we wrestle with the difficult doctrines of predestination and sovereign election, may we remember that as Paul laid these doctrines out in this letter, he did so with a broken heart. A heart that was broken over their condition apart from Christ. And as we, learn, as we learn about these difficult doctrines, may we do so with a deep sorrow and unceasing anguish. And may our weeping over the loss move us to engage them in relationship. And, and, and show them the love of Christ by serving them. And share with them the love of Christ by giving them this good news. May our hearts mirror that of Paul's. That's the first thing that we're to see in these first five verses. The second thing that we should note is to see the unmistakable signs of Israel's favor with God. Look at verses four and five again with me. He says they are Israelites, these kinsmen according to the flesh, that they are Israelites And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is the God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul 
lists here the advantages of the Israelites. There are eight of them. Eight advantages that belong to the Israelites. They are the, they are the sole possession of the Israelites. No other nation can lay claim to these advantages. Let's look at them. The first is the adoption. To them belong the adoption. Now, you'll recall in chapter 8, Paul talked to us as believers in Christ who've been transformed by the gospel. He, he, he talked to us about our adoption as sons. And it was an indication that God had adopted into his family those who don't deserve to be in his family. We. That we become heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. We don't deserve that. We did nothing to earn that. But God selected us. He, he chose us to be his. And, and when we looked at adoption in chapter 8, we noted how uh, uh, adopted children are selected by their parents. They're chosen by their parents to, to be part of their family. And so when Paul here refers to the entire nation of Israel as adopted, Paul's identifying them as a chosen nation. Elected and selected by God to be his people. No other nation on the face of the earth could lay claim to that. Israel alone was adopted by God. To them belongs, second of all, the glory. To Israel, the glory of God was the visible manifestation and symbol of the presence of their God, Yahweh, the Lord. Whether it was in the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night or the Shekinah glory on the face of Moses as he came down from Mount Sinai having, just a, having received just a glimpse of the reflection of God. The temple and the tabernacle was said to be filled with the glory of God. So the glory of God was a, was a visible symbol of the very presence of God and no other nation could say that they had that symbol. Only Israel did. To them belong the covenants. James Montgomery Boyce notes that nothing is more characteristic of God's special relationship with Israel than the covenants. The covenants, beginning with the covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, when God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Abraham is known as the father of Israel. This covenant reaffirmed to his son Isaac and his son Jacob, later affirmed, reaffirmed, and elaborated on to Moses and then to King David. No other nation could lay claim to any covenants with Yahweh, not to mention all of these. Fourthly, to them belong the giving of the law. No other nation received the law. This was something that God did with Israel alone. They alone were the ones who received the very oracles of God. What they should do, what they should not do, how they were to approach God in worship. No other nation received these. To them belong the worship. This is a reference to the instructions that God gave to the Israelites with respect to the whole sacrificial system and, and, and the steps that they were to go through before Christ made final and complete atonement in order for them to come into worship of God. 
The other nations could not worship Yahweh because they didn't have the instructions on how to approach him in worship. Israel did. To them belong the promises. All the promises in the Old Testament were promises that were given to God's chosen people, Israel. No other nation could lay claim to these promises. To them belong the patriarchs, including but not limited to the patriarchs we've, we've mentioned, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, later on Moses, and King David, and King Solomon. We as Americans look back on, on our history, and we're, and we're proud to point to people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and the like. But no nation on the face of the earth has ever been so blessed by the patriarchs of their ancestry. But Israel was such incredible advantages that they received, such amazing privileges, if you will, rich blessings. Surely the Israelites were an advantaged people, a privileged people, if you will. And yet Paul says none of these are any guarantee of salvation. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul presents his own list of privileges and advantages. He calls them confidences in the flesh. Let me read that passage to you. He says, We glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, I have a lot more advantages than all of you. I am much more privileged than all of you. And then he lists his privileges, his advantages. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I am advantaged. I have privileges. Then he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. I count them as trash in order that I may gain, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that, that depends on faith. You see, for Paul, it's like a balance sheet. In accounting, a balance sheet holds on one side one's assets, and they're offset on the other side by one's liabilities. On one side is everything that you own, and it's offset on the other side by everything that you owe. And there was a point in time, Paul says, a point in time in which all of these things that he lists in Philippians chapter 3 were on the asset side for him. He was circumcised the eighth day according to, to pharisaical tradition. He was, it was done the right way with him. He was of the people of Israel. He was a part of this chosen nation. He was a part of the elect people. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. A pedigreed Israelite could trace their heritage back to only one of two tribes 
either Benjamin or Judah. And so he was a pedigreed Israel at that. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Both of his parents were Jews. That was important to them. As to the law of Pharisee, he was an expert in this. He was known for his righteousness. As to zeal, a persecutor of of the church, he was that zealous for God that he would persecute those who were following Jesus because he had rejected Jesus as a Jew. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Not that he had his own righteousness, but according to the righteousness of the Pharisees, he was blameless. He was advantaged. He was privileged. He had lots of reasons to find confidence in the flesh. But then Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. On the way to go persecuting more Christians, on the way to arresting more Christians and bringing them back to Jerusalem to stand trial and hopefully do prison time and hopefully be nailed to a cross like Jesus. Jesus shows up to him in a blinding light on that road to Damascus and he unveils the gospel to Paul. And as a result of the unveiling of the gospel to him, He sees that none of this stuff makes him acceptable to God. None of this stuff gives him any righteousness before God. His liabilities, which were his sin, was just too great. In fact, he realized that all of these advantages were actually keeping him from true righteousness as long as he trusted in them instead of this Jesus, this Christ And so he moved all of them over to the liability side. And the only thing that Paul would put in the asset column was the one thing, was the one advantage that the Jews rejected as one of their advantages. See at the end of verse 5, the final and eighth advantage of theirs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What is in the asset column for Paul is Christ alone, and it is enough. And this is what breaks Paul's heart for his fellow Jews. They had all these advantages. They were the adopted nation, the select people. They had the glory of God. They had the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs. And as great as these advantages were for them, none of them could make them righteous and justified before God. Paul knew that they were blinded by the very advantages that were intended to be a blessing to them. And it broke his heart. Today, we might list other kinds of advantages, like being raised in a Christian home, like being a part of a church that takes seriously its responsibility to teach the Bible, like being a member of such a church, like being baptized in such a church, like having a Bible and more than one in our own language and knowing a lot about what the Bible says. These are all great privileges and ones that we want for us and for our family and our children, right? But they don't save. 
We can't trust in anything that we do. Neither could the Israelites. We can't even trust in any good religious thing that we do. And to the degree that we trust in those things instead of Christ alone, or to the degree that we trust in those things in addition to Christ, is the degree to which those things, many of them, become a liability to us instead of an asset. And so if you're here and you're trusting in anything other than Christ to rescue you from the judgment that we all deserve because of our rebellion against God, if you're trusting in the fact that you're sitting in this seat in a church, if you're trusting in your membership in this or another church, if you're trusting in some religious rite that you performed some, some time in your past, whether it was baptism or whatever, if you're trusting in anything other than Jesus' finished work on the cross, then I beg of you to give up that hopeless endeavor. It is hopeless. That thing will never save you. That hope is an empty hope. We can only be rescued from what we deserve by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And through faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his righteousness is imputed to us, credited to our account, put on our asset column as if it were our own because it is now. We become righteous because of the alien righteousness of Jesus. There's no way to any righteousness in any other way. So if that describes you, I beg of you, give up your hopeless pursuit of pursuing righteousness through any other means and trust in Christ alone. And if you're here and you know Christ as Savior and Lord, in church, let us commit ourselves to be willing to pay any price, to be willing to sacrifice anything. You fill in the blank. Or actually, let God fill in the blank. Whatever it is that God is asking you to give up, whatever God, God is asking you to sacrifice, be willing to give it up. Be willing to give it up and be compelled by the love of Christ for you. And let us be compelled by our love for the lost to give to the lost a gospel that dismantles any and all advantages that one might have and shows Christ alone to be our only hope. Let us pray.